Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and I'm joined as usual by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And we're working our way through Romans. And uh, I, I thank those of you that have sent us emails and uh, especially all of you that are listening to us on podcast. I hope that this is an encouragement to you. Our main goal is to encourage you to open up your Bibles and, and feel very comfortable reading this wonderful letter from Paul. And uh, you know what I find, Ken, is, and of course, having been a pastor, and uh, you know, I've read this book many times. I, I'm sure I've read Romans from cover to cover a couple dozen times, easy, in the, over the years. But even, Ken, as I'm going through this now for this study, it's amazing how now that we're in chapter 9, uh, in my morning devotions, I'm also reading through Romans, and I'm back in chapter 5, and it's like all of a sudden chapter 5 makes even more, have more meaning to me because of what we're doing in 7, 8, and 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just reminds me that you can never prayerfully read Scripture enough. That yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Every single time you, you take the moment to read Scripture, the Holy Spirit can awaken waken us to a, a new understanding, a new appreciation, if we're open mm-hmm. to what God wants to do in our lives. And, and Ken, I think that's the reason that Pope Francis continues almost weekly to encourage his listeners to keep a gospel in their pocket, uh, to read it every day, mm-hmm. uh, because we, we, we never know when we might be surprised uh, when we hear something that, oh boy, I've read that a dozen times and Oh, wow. Is that what God was saying? <laughs> well, reading God's Word is so, uh, as you say, I mean, it, it's a never-ending <clears throat> well that we can dip into and and refresh from. You know, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth before he, before he uh, <clears throat> stepped down from the papacy, um, or rather even before he became Pope, it was, there was a kind of a saying around Rome that... Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was through at his office, he would get on the metro to go back to his uh, residence, and uh, people would see him sitting there reading his Greek New Testament. And so you can just imagine, so he works all this day on this heavy theology, and then he gets on the metro, and he opens up his New Testament, well, just like you and I would. It's a great encouragement to all of us that Scripture is is an un, um, is an unfathomable resource of grace. Well, I hear that baby crying in the background at your house, Ken, and uh, reminds me of uh, Psalm 1981, where it says, My soul languishes for thy salvation, I hope in thy word. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the cry of that baby kind of reminded me of, of that whole huge Psalm 119, which is all about the power of God's word to change our lives. The whole gospel, that whole huge Psalm. Uh, and mm-hmm. meditating on it day and day, and the word is a lamp to our feet, and uh, you know all those things about Lord, uh, you know, open my heart to your word, and, you know, may my whole life be guided by your word. Well, you know, that's a background I think to our passage in Romans because in this section in Romans verses fourteen through thirty in in chapter nine is we're dealing with a difficult portion of scripture. Uh, 
Mm, you certainly are. And I jokingly say that this chapter in my Bible has circles all over it from touching it with a 10-foot pole because <laughs> I, I know that in all the years that I preached as a pastor, I pretty much avoided this section. And the reason for me personally was I was a Presbyterian Calvinist preacher, an evangelical Calvinist preacher. And that distinction for me is that uh, I hung my hat on the theology and the writings of evangelical teachers and preachers like C.S. Lewis, uh, J.I. Packer, John White, uh, some of these uh, great English evangelical writers that were influenced by particularly the Dutch Calvinists in a certain way, which have a different slant than uh, I think they were more influenced by uh, Zwingli than Calvin directly. But, but we have this struggle with what does it mean to be a Calvinist, a Reformed Christian, and both you and I can come from this background, um, and what we're encountering in this passage, for us at least, is the struggle between our previous Calvinist understanding of predestination. And, you know, what about the people that have never heard? Or what about the people that haven't responded to Christ? And how do we link that with our understanding of God's omniscience, his omnipotence, his sovereignty? All the scriptures that talk about him before the beginning of time, knowing what's going to happen, not just knowing, but causing and choosing and Mm -hmm. making things happen. How do we understand that, put it together, so that in Paul's case, we look at the Jews, the chosen people of God, who yet, in the time of Paul, had not accepted Christ. How do we explain that? And Ken, from your Presbyterian background and now our our Catholic background, there's a bit bit of a conundrum there on how to understand these passages. Well, there certainly is, and and the great uh, the greatest theological minds in the history of the church, uh, certainly uh, minds like Saint Thomas Aquinas, and um, who dealt very explicitly with the problem of the question of predestination, and even in the Calvinist tradition, <clears throat> everybody would say that. Um, that this question of God's foreknowledge and his causing of events, his foreordination of events, is in fact um, a, a very uh, great mystery as to how that reconciles with uh, free will. And uh, there, there, there is no, there is no completely so a satisfying answer to that. And that's for a good reason. It's not just that God is incomprehensible, but sometimes His ways, uh, the the when we consider these high and mysterious issues, um, they are incomprehensible too. But what we know is that the question of God's foreknowledge and foreordination and yet human freedom, I think of it as a paradox. Now, I distinguish a paradox from a contradiction. Contradiction is like, you know, the sun is shining and the sun is not shining. That's a direct contradiction. But a paradox is something in which we know two things must be true, 
but we don't know how to reconcile them. Let me give you a physical example. Through the history of physics, it's back in Newton's day, uh, light was conceived of as a particle. It had all these little particles of light, and this is what we have mean by a photon, right? And yet in the 19th century, they began to discover that certain experiments indicated that light was rather a wave rather than a particle. And that tension between whether it's a particle or a wave has never been resolved in physics. It's just a paradox. And no one knows how to do it. There's there's all kinds of logical paradoxes as well that mathematicians and logicians have pointed out. Well, if we're talking about things you might say on the material or on the human level, what about things on a divine level? Certainly that would even be a much greater paradox. The paradox is essentially this. We know that God must be all-knowing. In other words, God is being omniscient knows what is going to happen and it cannot not happen if he knows that it's going to happen because his knowledge is absolute it's not relative like ours it's not conditioned like our knowledge is god absolutely knows what's going to happen tomorrow and it will happen according to his knowledge on the other hand we know that human beings must be free why must they be free because <clears throat> Human beings are held morally responsible for their actions, and not just by Scripture and Christians, but by human beings everywhere recognize that human beings are moral beings and must be recognized, must be held responsible for their actions. But it seems necessary that if we say a human being is held responsible for his actions, that they must also be free to be able to act in another way as well. And so when they choose the path of X, when they should have chosen Y, then we, have, we can hold them morally responsible because they should have chosen Y rather than X. And then the question becomes, well, okay, if human beings have this freedom of choice, then how does that fit in with this sovereign knowledge of God and even, in some cases, foreordination of God? How do these things fit together? Paul broaches that subject in this text. But one thing is clear. Neither Calvin nor Thomas Aquinas would have said, oh, I've got it sewn up. I understand yeah. it. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely a mystery how this, par this paradox can be true. And yet we know they must both be true because if we deny one or the other, we're denying essential truths about either God or ourselves. I remember when I was in seminary, Ken, and I was a uh, Protestant seminary, evangelical seminary, and I was dealing with understanding my Calvinism and then applying it to my call to be a pastor. And how am I going to live that out and help people live their life as they seek to follow Jesus Christ? And my th uh, theological term paper that I was challenged to write my, my thesis under a, a, a professor, Ken, that you and I both know, Dr. Nicole, uh, mm -hmm. Lord bless his soul. Yeah. Um, uh, my thesis was, if God has predestined all things from the beginning of time, then why pray? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I had to struggle with. You know, In other words, in a practical sense, if God has predestined everything yeah, from the beginning no of time, then there's no point to prayer, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Why pray? What yeah, exactly. difference does it make? And I remember being really stuck in that. In 
because I was limited to the categories that I had as my Calvinist presumptions. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I ended up with the conclusion that since God is outside of time, then so are my prayers. Uh, you know, our, when we pray a prayer, it's in time, but it's it's uh, efficacious uh, play a part in God's plan is outside of time. In essence, our prayers uh, get transported to the beginning of time. And when I look back, it's it's kind of like um, you're you're the science and religion guy, Ken. It's kind of like what people had to do when they presumed the earth was the center of the universe. So they had to come up with equations to explain the movement of the stars and the, and the comets and everything because they all had to somehow go around the earth. So they had these really complicated equations mm -hmm. that all of a sudden became simpler once you recognize that the sun is the center of our universe and that our universe isn't the center of the entire um, universe. Um, uh, space mm -hmm. and all of a sudden mm -hmm. things got simpler well you know I'm right. trying to how do I make prayer fit with predestination until we, we back up and we see that there's a both and there's the mm -hmm. mystery of the both and and it's beyond us um, our ability as human beings to truly understand God's sovereignty and in a way the end result is exactly what happened to Thomas Aquinas at the end of his life. After he had spent his whole life writing the Summa and his other books, Ken, what, did, what were the last things that he said uh, in the end of his life? Yeah, well, that's a wonderful thing to bring up at this point. And, and that story, by the way, has been verified as, as being almost certainly true um, by his biographers. And at the end of his life, uh, almost uh, about 50 years of age, he had this vision in the chapel of his Dominican monastery uh, there one day <clears throat> in which he saw Jesus and heard Jesus speaking to him. He was there in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and Jesus spoke to him and said, You know, Thomas, you have written well of me. What is it that you desire? And Thomas gave the response that I hope that I will give on my deathbed only more of you. <laughs> yeah, that's yep. what he, he said. Oh, I don't want anything but what is more of you. And then he realized that everything that he had written was like straw. Now, you got to understand the, you know, Luther used the um, imagery of straw, too. Uh, because in that day, of course, what is straw? Well, straw is just something you throw out there for the horses to eat, yeah. right? The cows to eat. It isn't. It isn't beautiful. It isn't significant. It isn't precious. It's just ordinary and common. So what you have in Saint Thomas Aquinas is a reminder that all of our uh, theologizing, all of our uh, all of our language and words about God and so forth falls so far short of who God is. In a way, that fits very well with our passage here because right. that's what Paul is reminding us of, is that if you think you can understand God, you got another thing coming. God is way beyond your ability to understand. And, and that really is the danger, Ken, and I'm so glad that you, you filled all that story in because we're in verses 14 through 33, and especially those of you that have taken on the challenge to lead a local Bible study. 
uh, with your friends or family or maybe parishioners, these are tough things. And they kind of represent Paul addressing questions of, of people that are presuming to be able to put God in a box. Mm-hmm. And, and so Paul is addressing difficult questions with, with difficult answers because of the limitations of our human perspective of God. And as I was looking at these passages, Ken, it reminded me of what a blessing it is that we have the entire sacred tradition and the New Testament. And Paul didn't have that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, sitting been, when, when Paul was writing this, Ken, maybe to tell our audience, what was the foundation that Paul had before him? for him to base his answers on? Well, he had, of course, the Old Testament. And he had, of course, his Jewish upbringing and his Jewish, uh, it says in the book of Acts that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the leading teacher, probably the chief rabbi of Jerusalem during the time when Paul was a young man before he was converted to Christ. Um, but he had all of that. And um, and he had this, this wonderful gift of the Septuagint, as well, because the, the the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek around 250 A.D. in the city of Alexandria. But because most Jews were native speakers of Greek at the time, the copies of that Septuagint spread even into Jerusalem. Even And so many Jews were using the Septuagint as well as uh, the Hebrew Bible. And you see evidence of that here in this text, uh, uh, Marcus, because in verse 15, uh, which we'll, I guess, talk about more in a minute, but he says, when Paul asked the questions, so what shall we say? There is no unrighteousness or unlawfulness with God, is there? No, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That text, he's quoting from Exodus thirty-three nineteen, is a direct quotation from the Septuagint. And likewise, the quotation in verse 17, which diverges a little bit from the Hebrew Bible we now have, uh, it, it also, from Exodus 9, 16, is a quotation from the Septuagint. Now, I think that's significant because, as we know, um, the Catholic Church has accepted the Septuagint and its Latin and the Latin translation from it as being the canon uh, for the Church, uh, whereas um, <clears throat> whereas the, the Protestant churches accept only the Hebrew canon. So the Hebrew canon has seventy uh, sixty six books. The Septuagint has seventy two. <clears throat> it's clear here that Paul is quoting from the Septuagint. Yeah, that confirms the, the history and the, the foundational veracity of the entire Septuagint canon. Another thing, though, that I wanted to point out, he didn't have sitting in front of them as we do, the Gospels written down. No, that's right. He didn't have all the other epistles of the New Testament. He didn't have the letters of John in front of him. He didn't have the letter of James or Hebrews or... Uh, I don't I don't know which of his own letters he had written yet and whether he even had copies of them left in front of him. They're all handwritten and then passed on. Uh, he's in he's in prison. So Paul is left to deal with these difficult questions based on the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the tradition as passed down from Jesus to his apostles and then to him, um, the Septuagint in front of him. 
And that's what he had, as well as Greek philosophy. And he was using that in a variety of his writings, especially as he's helping the former pagan converts to come to the faith. All right, let's, we've been talking a lot as a background of the passage. We're going to look at 14 through 33, and uh, basically you could outline the plan of his thought in this is verse 14 is a, is a, um, a supposed objection that Paul is addressing to what he had said in verses 1 through 13. And then verses 15 through 18, he gives his first answer, which is based on a few scripture quotes. Then verse 19 is another objection to what he has just given. And then verses 20 through 29 are three more answers to this very question as to, uh, you know, how do we understand uh, this relationship between the mercy of God and his sovereignty? And verses 20 and 21 are his second answer again about God's sovereignty with the image of a potter and uh, the clay. Um, And then verse 22 to 24 is in the third answer. Uh, in which it deals with God's forbearance. And then verses 25 through 29 is a, is a fourth answer based on quotes of Scripture from the prophets. And then in verse 30 through 33, we have essentially an introduction to the entire next section that includes chapter 10, uh, which deals with the question of whose fault is this? Okay, with all that we've said, is this God's fault? Or is this Israel's as to their involvement in the in the church? So if, if that is an overview, let's then back up to verse 14. And the, he Paul then begins his argument, presuming that his audience has heard what he has said in verses 1 through 13. He then says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And, you know... Um, Ken, I'm, I'm wondering, just in kind of a general pastoral sense, if this is not um, a common question that even Christians have when their lives don't go the way it ought, or, uh, you know, they thought they knew what God wanted to do and it doesn't work out very well, or mm-hmm. when things happen to them in their lives and they try and understand, uh, how did this happen? And the question is, did God do this to me? Did God cause this to happen? Uh, So I'm thinking that Paul's dealing with a much bigger question than just the simple one here that he's addressing. Well, the, the, the question, of course, that Paul immediately is addressing is the question of Israel's unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, His answer that we studied uh, last time was when he says in verse 6 that not all Israel is of Israel. But for him as a Jew, uh, that is a deeply troubling conclusion um, that that God, is he he rejected his people? 
I mean, what what are we to say about about Israel when the fact of their unbelief? And he's going to deal with that in chapter 11, because in chapter 11, he's going to ask the question explicitly. Uh, at the very beginning, he says, "Is has God rejected Israel? And his answer to that is no. Um, but here he's dealing with the question of what about those Jews that didn't believe? And his answer, remember, from their previous discussions was that God has been making a distinction even within the people of Israel. And that is, it was Jacob, it was, excuse me, it was Isaac's, uh, was was uh, Abraham's heir, not Ishmael. And he makes a distinction between, uh, with Isaac as a father, he had, through Rebekah, he had Jacob and Esau. And he then has a quotation from the book of Malachi, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. So the question then is, isn't this unjust of God to do this? Now, you said, you said, uh, isn't this a problem? Well, I think this is one of the biggest problems. This is why people, one of the reasons why people become atheists um, who come from Christian backgrounds, and I, I know several of these people, um, they think that God is unjust and that God has done something wrong or that God doesn't care about the world. And so um, this is an existential problem, a problem that they see in their everyday existence. And I'm trying to help actually several people on this on this very score uh, right now, and it's a long process of patience and prayer and being there for them. Uh, Paul is asking that question, is there any injustice? Now, he gives the answer that any good Jew or Christian would give. Uh, which may genoito in Greek is translated uh, usually by no means. They used to be translated God forbid. Another more modern uh, colloquial translation might be no way Jose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, just, there's just absolutely no way that God could be unjust. Well, that's. but then how do you know God's not unjust? And then he gives the answer in verse 15, where God has the freedom to show mercy to whom he would show mercy. Now, the problem here is not so much uh, mankind in this faceless, you know, mass of mankind out there, and then he chooses some and he rejects others. That's the way I used to conceive of it as a, as a Calvinist. What Paul is dealing with here, I think, is how can God have mercy on the Gentiles this is a specifically Jewish problem. How can God have mercy on the Gentiles when it's the Jews who are his chosen people? That's the problem Paul's dealing with here. All right, and uh, we'll, we'll pause because he also then in verse 16, 17, following that, uses the example of Pharaoh. And often we get this image of, of, of God just caused Pharaoh to be hardened. Yeah. And so why was it Pharaoh's fault? We'll come back in a moment after the break. You're listening to Deep Inscription. See you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, 
I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home, Marcus's guest is former Anglican Joshua Bowman. See why he left his faith tradition to find his way home to the Catholic Church on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Thanks for taking a break with us. We're going to get right back into this passage. We're looking at Romans chapter um, 9. And as you mentioned before the break, Ken, verse 14 uh, really kind of summarizes, well, wait a second here, wait a second, um, that uh, if this is true, that what you've said in earlier passages, then how does this demonstrative of God's mercy, is it? What about God's mercy? And you know, Ken, you were saying to many atheists, uh, that's one of their rejections about God. And I think it's also one of the reasons that Unitarianism and Universalism rose in New England was Mm -hmm. this struggle between the sovereignty of God and yet his mercy. And Mm -hmm. so the Universalists came up with the idea that everyone will eventually be saved, of course, because of God's mercy. Uh, and that's always been. Well, go ahead. No, I was going to say and that. And that that's a good point. It was a reaction to a kind of hyper Calvinism, which said, you know, that people are damned from eternity, and there's nothing they can do about it. <clears throat> and so they began to wonder, well, am I one of those damned from eternity? And that this was the struggle of the, some of the Puritans in New England in the early part of our country's history. And he uses the example of Pharaoh. Which uh, I have to admit, I've known many that have struggled with the way Pharaoh is perceived and the way it's described. He says in verse 16, so it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. In verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy upon whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. And those passages can seem to, it sounds like Paul is giving a rubber stamp to the idea that God just decides. He just decides. And he hardens someone's heart or he calls someone. It's up to God. I think what what Paul is, uh, is saying here. And again, this is, uh, as you mentioned at the opening of our program today, 
uh, we go back to Scripture and we see different things there than we saw before. And I think what you said is he, as Paul, uh, giving credence to the idea that he's just an arbitrary God. Uh, <clears throat> that's the way I tended to conceive of this situation with God as a Calvinist, but as now as a Catholic. And the Catholic Church gives us these parameters and says, look, you can't think of God as being arbitrary here. And so uh, what does verse 18 mean then when he says, so then whomever he wishes, he has mercy, and whomever he wishes, he, he hardens. Uh, it looks like that Pharaoh is just a puppet that's being used for God's purposes. But go back and read Exodus chapter 7 through about Exodus chapter 10 and 11. That's the plagues, where the plagues are told, the, the, you know, the 10 plagues of Egypt. And if you look at that, you will see that at the very beginning of the story, um, Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may go into the desert and the wilderness and offer sacrifice to me. And it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, as they move through the plagues, then it says, it, the language changes and said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But you see, there's that mystery of the combination. He hardened his heart, and God was hardening his heart. In other words, it's not as if God was imposing some hardening upon Pharaoh's heart against his will. He really wanted them to believe, but he couldn't because God wouldn't let him. No, no. He was, Pharaoh was hardening his heart all along. And that is part of God's justice that he gives people what they want. If they want to turn away from him, he's not going to force them to turn to him. And so there's this combination that God, uh, that, that, that the human being has freedom to make a choice. But at the same time, God conforms them in that choice in some way, shape, or form. The point that Paul is making here is that here is Pharaoh, a pagan king of Egypt. And he can choose him to use him whatever way he wishes. In other words, it's not a matter of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile as to whether God will have mercy upon you. No, no, that that de that doesn't depend upon your status in the world. You know, Ken, from the beginning of the history of the church, um, the uh, the one person that has always been lifted up as the model for us to follow in humility as we seek to follow our Lord Jesus Christ has always been his mother Mary. And Ken, you're a scholar of the early church fathers and very early on they were pointing to her. Yes. And were. if I were, let's consider for a moment the question about Mary's place in salvation. And she is the, the woman that God chose to be the mother of his only begotten son. And uh, the incarnation took place in her womb. The creator of the universe became a man in her womb. And his humanity came from her. His divinity was uncreated and eternal. So we have the mystery of the incarnation in Mary. Now, the question is, did God predestined Mary to be the mother of Jesus 
apart from her freedom of choice? Did she have the freedom to respond? Now, Catholics, Christians from the beginning of time, have always called that Mary's fiat, her freedom to choose, her will that she surrendered to God. And we hear it in her response when she says in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, she said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So she is giving her permission. But if you listen to the words of the angel when he talks to Mary, announces what will happen, he says in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then if you jump down to verse 35 in Luke, And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So in the enunciation of the angel, it's not expressed as an option. It's expressed as the, as the will of God from the beginning of time that sh- this will happen to her. But yet at the same time, in Luke 38, 138, we see that it was also her freedom to respond. So there in the, in the very example of Mary, we see this juxtaposition of God's decision his plan, uh, you know, what he wants to happen, but yet at the same time, his sovereignty uh, being hand in glove with the freedom he gave Mary. And it embraces that freedom as well. God's plan is, is not apart from our free response to it. Um, that's, this is an excellent uh, point that you're bringing out here because the language of Gabriel the angel Gabriel to Mary does sound very uh, absolute. You shall bear a son. You know, you will be pregnant. You become pregnant. You'll give birth to a son. You'll call his name Jesus. Uh, this is the plan. And in fact, in the um, in the decree about the Immaculate Conception from Pius IX in 1854, he says that Mary was predestined to be the mother of God. But that predestination was not in contradiction to or in or in place of the the answer that mary gives as you pointed out she says let it be done to me according to your word and that is relevant to what paul talks about here uh, when he says in verse 19 back in romans chapter 9 well then you'll say to me well then why does he find fault who, who resists his will see this is the question then then what what paul is saying the objector says uh, makes us a puppet and the answer that you are pointing us to in luke chapter 1 is that even with the strong language of this shall happen you shall do this and da 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 da, da there's still the free response that mary gives paul emphasizes a slightly different point but but just as relevant and that is that we are compared to God we are like clay in a potter's hand yeah. right yeah and so he's trying to he's trying to point he's not denying free will at this point but he's just pointing to the fact of this great distance between God and man and it's often the case and this is interesting in teaching in university for for several years and uh, and in talking to uh, intellectuals of various times 
I've noticed that they do often think of God as like just one step above us. You know, in other words, you got this hierarchy of knowledge and this hierarchy of intelligences. And let's say they even acknowledge that angels are intelligences. Well, God is just like one step above that. (laughs) The church teaches us that there's an infinite distance between God and even the most intelligent angels. They cannot comprehend God either. It's not just that we can't comprehend God. They can't comprehend God. St. John Chrysostom teaches this in his in his letters about angels uh, in the 4th century. Well, if that's true of angels, how much more true is it of us? That the, the, though the clay cannot say back to the to the to the potter, well, why did you make me like this? Now, that isn't a complete answer to God's, um, God's working with this, but it is an important thing to remember. And so Paul goes on then to give further evidence and answers to this, to this conundrum. You know, in a sense, the, the fact that, that St. Paul gives four perspectives on this, just that in itself emphasizes that this is not an easy topic. No. He doesn't just have one simple answer. He's looking at it from a number of angles. And you were just saying a moment ago that, that God is so infinitely greater even than the most intelligent angel. You know, that's the, that's the angle that, that C.S. Lewis took in his screw tape letters. Mm-hmm. Because all through the screw tape letters where you have the, uh, the senior demon uh, screw tape uh, instructing his younger demon nephew, Wormwood, on how to tempt and try and lead a person away from God. All through the book, even the head demon does not quite get it, what God's (laughs) trying to do. He does not understand why God loves these vermin. (laughs) God's got to have something behind this whole thing. Uh, It's got to be, and so the devil doesn't understand God, doesn't understand why God would become incarnate. Um, and so if, if that's true, then who do we think we are to be able to put God in a box and maybe or even say, God, you know, if it, it, I think you should have done it a little different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had been smart, God, you'd have done it this way. Well, you know, there's the arrogance that we yeah. vermin, <laughs> to use screw yeah. tape's l- um, language, yeah. uh, you know, uh, or worm, to use the language of the Puritan or uh, English Puritan hymn writers. Uh, Paul goes on to give a third answer, Ken, um, after the potter and the clay uh, in verse 21. Uh, in verse 22, he says, well, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Yeah. Well, this answer, I think, is um, is very uh, profound in that he tells us the purpose of it. It's, it's stated in verse 23. He says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for or upon the vessels of mercy. And this is predestination to eternal life, which he prepared for glory. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas makes a distinction in his discussion, and he talks about a predestination to grace 
and a predestination to glory. The predestination of the glory is what a Calvinist means by predestination. They mean a predestination to heaven. All right. And the predestination to grace is something that St. Thomas Aquinas says, that God gives sufficient grace for everyone to be saved. Now, whether they're saved depends upon their response. But he gives them enough grace, that's sufficient grace, to be um, to be saved. But those that take advantage of that sufficient grace or whatever grace is given to them and end up believing and trusting and loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind, they are the ones that are predestined to glory. But notice there's another point here that when he says that he is very patient with the, the vessels of of wrath that is those that are eventually going to be damned they're prepared for destruction but the purpose of that is to show forth god's mercy upon those who are the vessels of mercy now we might ask the question why does god prepare people for destruction and that's that's where the Calvinist, I think, makes a mistake. The Calvinist says that God has prepared certain people for destruction from the foundation of the world. But you'll notice if you read verse 22 very carefully, it doesn't actually say that. What it says is that God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And in the version that you have here, it says made some of the other versions, including the, the Protestant translations of the King James, the English Standard Version, and some others, they choose the word prepared. And that is the Greek word used here, katertizomai, or katertizo. And then these, these are prepared for destruction. But notice it doesn't say who's preparing them. It doesn't say God is preparing them for destruction. It says simply that they are prepared for destruction. They could be prepared by themselves, by their rejection of God, by the rejection of his mercy that's being given to them. It doesn't actually say that God prepares them for destruction. But it does say that God prepares people for glory in verse 23. And so he says in verse 24 uh, that the, even those whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And here's the point he's getting to. He's getting back to his central point, is that the vessels of mercy are going to come from the Gentiles as well as from the Jews. That harkens back to the great promise to Abraham, remember? That your descendants will be like the stars of the sky that cannot be counted. Your descendants will be like the sands of the seashore. If you could count all of those, then you would know. But no, you can't do that because God's mercy is universal or Catholic. You know, Ken, uh, it's interesting when we look at Luther's and Calvin's conclusions on these passages uh, that led them to a real strong predestinarian conclusion. Uh, even to the point of, you know, they're both Luther and Calvin believed in total depravity. In other words, there's nothing we can do uh, on our own. Um, and then the question of, uh, you know, God's call to in the life of a person who was saved. It's interesting if you look at the historical background in Luther and Calvin. Luther's and Calvin are both writing in the early 1500s. They're 
philosophical and theological foundations in their lives were established in the early 1500s. Well, what significantly happened in 1492? The audience needs to think about what significantly happened in 1492 that changed the outlook of everyone. Mm -hmm. And it changed the theological, uh, uh, look what I'm calling about the, um, the, the whole understanding. Because before 1492, and Ken, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, the majority of theologians in Europe believed that everyone had heard the gospel. And if they weren't Catholic, if they had not surrendered to the church and been a part of the church, it was because they had chosen against it. And so uh, they understood that anyone outside the church was outside because they had chosen to be outside the church. In 1492, all of a sudden, a discovery changes their entire outlook. Well, when 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, there's no doubt about the fact that those voyages of discovery that began in the 15th century and began and became to real fruition in the 16th and 17th century really opened up European Europeans' minds about the diversity of humanity. Now, they knew about that. They'd heard about that. Even the ancient Greeks, uh, you know, uh, hypothesized or uh, believed that there were people beyond their reach. But nevertheless, when they had concrete evidence of that, um, as early as the 13th century, like when Marco Polo went to went to China, uh, they began to realize that, but it took a few centuries for that really to, to, uh, um, to settle in. By the way, it's this is a bit of a parenthesis, but it's worth reminding ourselves that in the 16th century, when the Protestant Reformation began, for the next two centuries, the greater number of missionaries by far were Catholic missionaries than yeah. Protestant missionaries. It was only in the in the about the 18th century that Protestant missions really began to take off, and in the 19th and 20th centuries, that's when Protestant missions were very very strong. But as soon as the Catholic world became aware of these great diversity of peoples, they were very zealous to send missionaries to take the message of Christ to them, both to the New World and to the East. Yep. The Catholic missions in India, in China, in Japan, ultimately with St. Francis Xavier and others, uh, these, were, um, these people were very zealous to take the gospel because they believed that Christ and his church was the means of salvation for people. Yeah, because the, the Calvinist conclusion for, let's say, the Huron Indians in North America uh, is that the fact of their ignorance is proof that they aren't of the elect. Mm-hmm. You know, that was often the case. You know, the, the proof of their ignorance, their immorality, and all of that is is evidence that God hadn't chosen them. So there was no motive to go... Uh, try and convert them because they're of the, the, however the Catholics look differently and sent Isaac Jogues and other missionaries into Canada because as Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that that they have on their conscience mm-hmm. what is the natural understanding of what is true and they're given sufficient grace to respond to that 
whether they hear about Jesus or not. They've been given sufficient grace to respond to what they hear in their heart. But because of sin, they're going to fail. So we need to evangelize so they hear the whole story and then can choose God. Let's, uh, we only get a couple more minutes, Ken. There's one more answer in 25 through 29 in which Paul digs back into the prophets of Hosea and Isaiah to answer this question in a different, a slightly different way. Yeah, in, in reaching back into Hosea, I think this statement is particularly uh, salient. Uh, he says, I will call those that were not my people, not my people. And this is what he called one of his sons that was born to him by the pro- by the prostitute Gomer. And the name of the child was Lo-Ami, which means in Hebrew, not my people. But he's saying that those that were not my people are going to be my people. And the one that was my beloved, it was not my beloved, is going to be my beloved. In other words, already in the Old Testament prophets, when it might have been justifiable for a Jew to think, oh, God loves and cares only for Israel, the prophet Hosea is a reminder that God's love is not limited to one race, to one people. And that's, of course, what animated those early Christian or early Catholic missionaries like, you know, Matteo Ricci and the Franciscans and the Dominicans that all went to China, went to the East and came to the New World, founded the great missions in Florida and California. It was this awareness that God loves all people and that no one should be denied the opportunity to be able to hear the gospel, to embrace baptism, embrace the Catholic, embrace um, embrace the Catholic Church. By the way, just a reminder of, to our to our audience, there's a beautiful movie about this that was made back in the 1980s called The Mission. Oh yeah, and uh, they should see that movie. It's a beautiful movie about the missions of. Uh, uh, that took place in uh, South America. The Jesuit Father Gabriel was his name, and he was uh, he died there. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful movie, and it's based upon, it's kind of a conglomeration of historical facts that were there. It also shows the tensions between Catholics who were there for economic reasons and those that were there for truly spiritual reasons. But it's a great movie. Yeah, and then in verse 27, we see the prophet pointing to the, chance that though all of Israel was God's chosen people, there would yet be a remnant. God knew ahead of time who's going to respond, but yet they were there, there's a freedom there of God's chosen people to respond to the fullness of God. And, and we see that all through Scripture, uh, with its older New Testament. All of us are called, but not all of us respond to God's grace. And that's hopefully what we're talking about in Romans. We'll pick up next week with verse 30 with the question, whose fault is it anyway? Is it God's fault or is it our fault? In other words, when we respond or don't respond to God. Ken, thanks for joining us. All of you, thanks for joining us. Go to deepinscripture.com. We'd love to hear from you on whether this program is helping you in your study of Scripture, particularly in drawing you close to our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. See you next week.